Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the hard questions about why our institutions are failing and how we might fix them. I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America, and we are recording this on October 23rd, 2023, 10 and uh, the big news in Washington is that Republicans are now almost three weeks into this self-created leadership crisis. And I've been saying for a while that it feels like the old order of American politics can't go on much longer and that something, something big is about to change and it's feeling more and more like that. But whether that change will be for the better or for the worse, it's still hard to tell right now. So to help us think through the future of what our democracy could be and should be, I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, uh, Professor Arkan Fung, who is the director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Harvard Kennedy School, and also the Winthrop Laughlin McCormack Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government. That sounds like a very Harvard uh, title. He has written widely on democratic innovations and is you know, really one of the most creative thinkers out there on the possibilities of what 21st century democracy could look like. So I'm really excited, Arkan, to have you on the podcast for, uh, for really what I hope will be a, a wide-ranging conversation on the possibilities for self-governance in the 21st century. Great to be here, Lee. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Yeah, so glad you could join us. So how, how are you feeling about the state of American democracy right now? I have mixed feelings. I think you can divide them into short-term and medium to long-term. In the short term, I uh, probably share with a bunch of your audience and with you yourself uh, some significant worry about the fragility of our institutions and the political outcomes and especially whether or not we're able to manage these huge, huge challenges that are that are facing American society and many other societies. But in the medium and longer term, I'm uh, more optimistic. I think the potential for changes that improve the quality of American democracy, the window of opportunity for rethinking our institutions and, and hopefully making uh, improvements to them is more open than it's been in a, quite a long time, I think. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. And I try to focus on the longer term so I don't get too depressed because the immediate term is somewhat challenging. So I, I want to start the conversation uh, with one particular threat that seems to have really cropped up quite a bit in this past year, which is artificial intelligence. And you and Larry Lessig recently posed a thought experiment about something that you call clogger. So tell us about that and, and why it should keep us up at night. Thanks for that. So uh, Larry and I wrote this piece that builds off of a thought experiment that Larry developed in an article uh, of his uh, called on replicant speech, that is machine political speech. And the thought experiment is this, is what if you could develop an artificially an artificial intelligence powered campaign in a box? So if Lee wanted to run for Congress, uh, Lee might uh, hire Clogger Inc. to run his campaign. And Clogger Inc. is machine powered and with several different capabilities. The first is that Clogger can generate political messages and can generate many of them through something like a large language model for people who've played with ChatGPT. 
is an application built on GPT that is, uh, which is a large language model that's capable of of producing uh, quite compelling text depending on what you ask it. So the first capability is that it can message to people. The second capability is that it has access to large amounts of data. So the Republican and Democratic parties, as well as many other uh, political operatives and campaigns have very large data files. And uh, there are data brokers that will sell you information about all of us in minute detail. And so the second capability is that Clogger has access to this. And then the third capability, which is a little bit more hypothetical, and we're not sure whether a machine could be trained to do this well, is to get better at gaming people. That is, the idea is that Clogger would send you a few messages this week, and then based on maybe uh, giving you a little survey or maybe just even looking at your web behavior or other digital behavior, it would figure out whether the messages that it sent you had been persuasive. That is to vote for Lee Drutman or whoever Clogger's candidate is. And then Clogger would tune its prompts and messaging to you. And I would be a different target. It would have a different set of tuning for me to make its messaging more effective over time to advantage its candidate. And then the thought experiment is if somebody could build Clogger, the opponent in a presidential election or a congressional election might be compelled to hire another AI that's had similar capabilities, Dogger, and then our political elections, at least that election, would be basically one AI versus another targeting voters to press them to support its candidate and oppose the other candidate. And whoever the winner is will have won largely because of the effectiveness of its AI and not necessarily because it satisfied voter preferences or persuaded more voters one way or another with real information and real arguments. So that's kind of a nightmare meltdown, AI meltdown scenario uh, that operates through the political domain that doesn't require, you know, some artificial general intelligence. I don't know. I mean, this is going to help me get elected to Congress without having to to raise all that campaign money and, and spend all this time with donors. I don't know. Isn't that good? Right? Like... Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd be a pretty good member of Congress. Not that, not that it sounds like an appealing job these days. But I mean, to be honest, it, it feels like we're already living in clogger land right now. I mean, just the the, the amount of micro targeting and, and messaging that, that is out there just seems like there it can't can't possibly be room for for more of it. And so, like, I don't know. Although maybe there can be. I th- I, I think for me the worry is this third point that you make in this argument, which is that we don't know what the parameters might be. And I think one parameter might be just demonization and confusion and threat, right? I mean, it seems like one effective strategy, particularly in our political system right now, given the binary nature of our politics, is that demonization is the most effective strategy. And it would just further destroy any sense that we have that our democratic institutions could work. Do you think that's the the, the winning strategy here? Well, I don't know what the winning strategy is. And, and Clogger might develop different strategies for different individuals, depending on what its uh, reinforcement learning algorithm told it about what is uh, effective. 
So I think in this messaging space, political messaging space, you can think about two pieces. One is the generation of the content, and the other is the distribution of the content. And as far as the distribution goes, I don't think generative AI changes that equation at all. So, you know, the messaging, whether it's from the Republicans or the Democrats or the Russians or the Chinese or whoever it is, would still go through the same distribution channels that you and I and everybody else in the United States are receiving political messages now, right, through text, through our social media feeds, through uh, other avenues. And so I don't think there would be necessarily more political messaging. What Clogger potentially would do is change the content of that messaging. And so Sam Altman testified before Congress and Josh Howley asked him this question about whether we should be worried about generative AI manipulating elections. And then Sam Altman said, yes, uh, that it was one of his largest concerns and that there were two different dimensions of that concern. One is misinformation and disinformation, you know, kind of deep fakes that a lot of people have talked about, and I think appropriately so. But then he mentioned another dimension, which I think has received less discussion. And he said, Senator, I think we should be worried about the one-on-one discussion capability of these large language models. So what the micro-targeting that we currently have does not do, and I don't think anyone uh, experiences as such, is that it doesn't really carry on a conversation with Lee or Archon that has you know one or two communications every day that evolve over time, that are continuous over the course of a whole campaign. Whereas a large language model generating political messaging does at least potentially have the capability to do that. So uh, you see this already commercialized. And I don't know if um, you've read about or logged on to Replica, which is a service that provides AI human companionship and friendship, right? And and so imagine that uh, analogy in the political domain. It's a one-on-one kind of interaction, which is not what marker targeting is now. Right. And I could certainly imagine that as people have online friendships and they, they might never know whether this person is real or not, but they might develop relationships based on communicating through social social networks. That that I could see how that could be quite dangerous. And one thing that that I worry a lot about is: does this mean that we don't trust anything? I feel like this is already the way our politics is going, and certainly this is how Trump has approached politics: is to say, well, you can't believe anything, so you might as well trust me. And I think one thing that's just continued to happen, and I'm thinking about this latest Pew report on Americans' dismal views on our politics, is that there's just this sense among more and more Americans that voters have no meaningful choices. Everything's controlled by the lobbyists and the rich and powerful. And I'm thinking of a question here in that Pew poll is, you know, percentage of people who say members of Congress care about the people they represent all or most or some of the time. And as recently as 2018, which is not that far away, 51% said that they did. Now it's down to 40% for Democrats and 37% for Republicans. So that's a pretty big drop in not that much time. So what do you what do you think is going on here? Do you think it's that, that members of Congress actually don't care? Or do you think there's a perception. Do you think members of Congress care about the people they represent? Do you think your member of Congress cares? 
I don't know. Um, <laughs> I hope so. I do know some of the statistics and everyone, uh, I, you'll probably put a link to this in the podcast, but everyone should have a look at that Pew report. I think it is very, very eye-opening about the state of American politics and public cynicism and, and distrust of our political institutions. So Lee, you know, when John F. Kennedy was president, they asked a similar survey question and they have been every year since. And the, the form of that question was, do you trust people in Washington to do what's right all of the time or most of the time? And when Kennedy was president, about 75% of Americans said, yes, I can trust people in Washington to do what's right most of the time or all of the time. And now that number is in the teens, right? So it's like very, it, the, the change, that's a long period, but the uh, decline in trust in our leaders, especially federal leaders to do right by us has been decreasing for a very, very long time now, many decades. Marty Gillins and Ben Page, and then Marty Gillins in separate work, have a very surprising and eye-opening finding that supports the subjective result. They look at a lot of actions that Congress has taken, the legislation, and try to match that up against public opinion about what actions people want Congress to take. And they find that on issues for which there's people who are very well off compared to people who are less well off, have different policy preferences. Congress is not at all responsive to the median voter or even to the bottom 80% of the income distribution, but Congress is very responsive to the top 10 or 20% of the income distribution. So if you take the Gillens and Page work or Marty Gillen's great book, Affluence and Influence, like if you gave that to the survey respondents in the Pew poll, they would say, yeah, I kind of understood that in some subjective way. And that's why I don't trust uh, Congress to uh, represent me very well, because they haven't been representing me very well on uh, at least that measure that uh, Gillens and Page developed. Right. So do you think that, uh, I mean, they don't have data going back to 1962, but do you think this reflects a qualitative change? In the extent to which Washington is representing the voters at the at the middle of the income distribution, or do you think it has to do with the perception of how things are in Washington? So what I'm going to cite now is very causally question questionable. Like I don't know if public policy, I think it probably could, right, have affected these two macro trends that feed into the distrust. One is growing inequality. We know that inequality now is at the highest levels in the United States since the Gilded Age. And the other is very important work by Ann Case and Angus Deaton on deaths of despair. And uh, their work uh, has this remarkable finding that people without a college degree, their life expectancy in the United States has actually been decreasing for about the past decade. Whereas people who do have a college degree on average, their our life expectancy is increasing, you know, not very quickly compared to prior decades, but still increasing. So the lives of people without a college degree, their life expectancy has actually been getting shorter over the last decade, which really measures, I think, is a very palpable and painful measure of how well Americans are doing. And so I think the question is, well, could public policy have really affected that? I think it probably could have. I can't prove that in any way. Is that a result of bad policy or insufficiently good policy? I don't know. 
But, you know, if I were someone who was particularly subject to these deaths of despair through alcoholism and the opioid crisis, I would have a fair amount of uh, distrust for the political system. I might even blame it on them and they might uh, deserve some of that blame. Yeah. I, I And I, I know that the Gillen's data starts at 1981. And really, if we look at the time trends, we see increasing inequality starting in the late 70s. We also see increasing partisan polarization, which inequality and polarization seem to go together. And there are a lot of, a lot of theories why I kind of view them as a reinforcing mechanism that as people get more and more frustrated, uh, more and more blame on the other side. Now, I think we first met uh, about 10 years ago when I was working at the Sunlight Foundation. And yeah, at the time, I was thinking a lot about transparency. I remember in the early 2010s, there was this sort of hope that, you know, if we could just bring more sunlight, it would be this great disinfectant. And I'm not sure it worked out quite that way. But when I think about the challenges, I think a lot about this essay, that wonderful essay that, that I read when I was you know, thinking about these things that you wrote called Infotopia, in, in which you really think through the implications of transparency and information for a democratic society. And the thing that, that has always stuck with me about this essay is that you make this incredibly important point that information as information, it's not the right way to think about it. It's information that's provided in ways that are accessible to groups that use that information. So you know, it has to be clear and also organized in ways that allow people to take action based on that information. You know, so back when I was at the Sunlight Foundation and we were putting out all this data and analysis on money and politics and lobbying, you know, I think there was a sense, wow, <laughs> there's so much money and so much lobbying and policy. And if I was somebody, uh, I mean, I was somebody who was trying to make sense of this, I said, wow, politics is really run for the, the rich and powerful. And so that fits with the, this idea that people are growing uh, cynical and frustrated but then I'd say, well, okay, what can I do? Like, wh what use is this information to me? Because what power do I have? Where am I, where am I getting to choose the representative who is taking money only from public donors or who is working with public interest groups and not with lobbyists? Like, in most places, you know, frankly, in most districts, there's not a choice between uh, the parties. And even where there is, it's not like, you know, one side is taking public dollars and the other is is not. So there's this sense of, of powerless. And, you know, I think there's been a little bit of a backlash to this transparency movement. And, you know, people have said, well, actually, we need less transparency and less participation. Uh, and all this scrutiny of government is just making people more cynical. But then I think back to your Infotopia frame and say it's not transparency as you know, that's the problem. It's the fact that there's all this information and people are powerless to do anything other than crawl up in a ball and, and wait until it's spring. No, that, that's a really good uh, point. I, I disagree with people who favor, I, although it is an argument that's out there, is that we have too much information that's causing distrust. And some of these arguments, the stronger versions are it, it actually enables the, all this information actually enables sophisticated actors to game more. And so it's actually bad for that reason. So a, a couple of points there. One is that transparency of government action as used by journalists and others, 
I think does have this perverse effect of being a gotcha game. And so sometimes I say to government officials that are sometimes in my class, people working in government, you experience transparency as very bad because it's an Amazon rating system in which you can only get one or two stars because nobody is going to report on you doing a five-star job. That's not an interesting story in most media scripts, but you doing a one-star job, that's an interesting story. I think that that's a problem, but the solution is not to restrict the amount of information, but to have journalism and other ways of reporting on how good or bad a job government is doing as the full five-star system. And we should give government credit when it's getting all five stars and doing a really good job. I think, you know, the kind of combination of government and the private sector developing COVID COVID vaccine very quickly. That's, you know, a 10-star job. And there are a lot of five-star jobs out there. Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, and also his subsequent book, The Premonition, is, is a I think, a really good effort to spot government officials who are doing a great job and giving them five stars. And I think we need a lot more of that so that we can have a balanced view, not just of when government is doing a bad job, but when it's doing a great job in keeping us safe from unsafe medicines and from uh, pollutants and from any other of a wide range of uh, risks that we in society face. So uh, I think that that's an important caveat on the information policy discussion. I like that. It's a job where you can only get a one or a two star rating. Now, I I mean, I I think it's a real challenge to get the press to cover good stuff because the way that our minds work is we're attracted to conflict and threat and danger. And these are the hot emotions that drive clicks, especially in an era in which everything is so click driven. And I want to come back to that point later in this conversation uh, when we talk about the the digital space more, uh, but but I want to I want to stick with one thing from this idea of transparency and decision making is one thing that's often been touted as a success story of transparency are, are the health letter grades that are put in front of restaurants where you get a clear sanitation score it's an A B or a C and so it's like hits you where you're making the decision and there's a clear incentive for restaurants to move up that scale. Now there are other metrics or other reasons why people might choose restaurants. It's not the it's not just their sanitation score, maybe because it's a place where they can get a table at that hour because it's you know, crowded hour. It may be that they really like food, it may be that it's cheap and they're willing to pay for less. But you know the point is that that, that puts that issue front and center and it creates a clear metric and a clear decision point. And I'm trying to think about what is the equivalent of that for voting? Is it party labels? I think it's hard for voting and the the analogy to the restaurant report card label. It falls down for many of these issues on which we're polarized, right? So, you know, I could put an environmental and climate change impact rating on an electric vehicle. And it would be true, right? The electric vehicle, maybe even all things considered, would have a more beneficial effect on carbon and and everything else. But if on the polarized issue of climate, for somebody who thinks that the climate crisis is whipped up and associates that with big government and other kinds of 
evils, then the very same report card is going to have a very different effect on, you know, somebody uh, who thinks that versus somebody who thinks, oh, there's a climate emergency going on and we need to do something about it. Whereas the LA uh, restaurant report card is different because I think pretty much everybody wants to avoid food poisoning, right? There's the, there's agreement on what the metric indicates and the value that it indicates there. But um, I just wanted to uh, return just for 30 seconds to the five-star Amazon rating for government. Part of it is what you said is we're in a kind of outrage and negative clickbait kind of culture. That's true. But I think part of, also part of it is that the uh, Ronald Reagan's bumper sticker slogan of government is not the solution to your problems. Government is the problem kind of captured the public narrative and still captures the public narrative. So Lee, I know you're uh, where there's a podcast and so readers can't see it, but I have this, I have this um, kind of paperweight that I made called government is good. And I was trying to all caps exclamation point. Yeah. (laughs) I was trying to popularize (laughs) that slogan around here because I teach at the Kennedy school where, and there were a couple of years where we had these uh, undergraduates come for a weekend to kind of take a look at the Kennedy School because they were thinking about getting a public policy degree either here or somewhere else. And I used to say, I used to give a little talk and at the part of that talk, I'd say, okay, I want you to say out loud to me, government is good because we're in a student, a school of government. And people can't really say it and they get really uncomfortable trying to say it because for a lot of people, it's so hardwired that of course, government is not good. Government is too big. It's incompetent. It's bloated. And so, you know, uh, President Reagan's perspective is one perspective, but there's also another perspective. Government is uh, the thing that uh, brings you roads that you can drive on and everything else. But that second perspective is uh, quite difficult to acknowledge verbally for a lot of a lot of people. Well, I I think it's precisely because it's not news when the road gets you from point A to B. It's news when the bridge falls into the river. And so we have an availability heuristic because what's news is is the dysfunction and not the function. But I I mean, I I do want to think a little bit more about the ways in which people make choices and participate in politics because we certainly have a lot of elections in this country. I think we have more elections, more elected offices per capita than probably any other democracy, although you might know this better than me. But we have a lot of choices. You know, we had uh, Stephen Rogers on the podcast a few weeks ago who wrote this book about state elections. And like some absurd percentage of elected state officials face neither a primary challenge or a general election challenge. And you go further down the ballot and there's even less competition. So is part of the problem that voters, to the extent that we should care about various things that elected officials do and particularly political parties do, because it's hard for individual elected officials to act on their own without political parties, is part of the problem that there's just not enough meaningful choices for voters to actually send clear signals. I think there are several problems. That's one. I completely agree with you that two is too few in terms of two is the number of parties we have and we should have more political choice. The uh, one finding in the Pew report that you cited earlier is that I think 
65%, 70% of Americans agree with you and I on, on that statement that uh, we'd be better served with more than two parties. And uh, the vast majority of Americans, at least on the if you if the Pew survey is correct, really want more than two parties at the national level. Uh, you know, I'm just making this up, but I think we'd be much better served if there were a Biden party, AOC, Bernie party, a Trump party, and a Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney party. I think we'd be better served because at minimum, voters would be more likely to vote for a candidate of their choice, right, who really reflected their views. But then also, um, kind of consequentially, I think it would be better because we get more cross-cutting alliances and you get just more deals going between left and right and up and down on uh, that dimension. I think it would be much better. Me too. So I, I want to move us outside of traditional elections. You, you've been thinking a lot about alternative types of policy making and discussion, citizens assemblies and deliberative forums that kind of go around the or, or, or alternatives to traditional interest group activity and partisan politics. So I'm curious what you see as the distinct advantages of, of these more participatory and deliberative approaches to government that are not what we think of as traditional electoral democracy. Yeah, good, good. So one of the advantages of these kinds of democratic innovations that involve more direct citizen participation and deliberation is I think that they fill a need right now that exists in the United States, but then also in many Western democracies of reconnecting people to government and political leadership. So this has run through our whole discussion so far is an important function of representative democracy is this act of election and parties and representation. They build bridges between the ordinary voter and you know the citizen out there and then their political leadership and in our time that bridge has collapsed in so many different contexts and so many different ways and so a huge challenge for democratic legitimacy and for a functioning democracy is how to rebuild those bridges and uh you know i just i don't think more elections will <laughs> will really do that i think more parties will help but I think democratic innovations will help too. So there's a couple of people. One of them is uh, Mike Neblo at uh, Ohio State University and uh, David Laser, and they've promoted participatory town halls in which a member of Congress will sponsor a randomly selected town hall of people in his or her district, and then maybe just get on a Zoom call and take questions and answers. For, from a randomly selected group for an hour or two. And they argue that that mechanism is really informative on both sides and really helps build these bridges. And so I think we know that most members of Congress, primarily who they hear from, are well-organized interests. And this is a way of hearing from a very, very different set of people. So that's one contribution of democratic innovation, but there are many, many others, and I'd be happy to talk about those. Um, I will say, you know, I've been working on the citizen participation and deliberative democracy for my whole career for uh, probably, you know, whatever, three decades now. And for most of that time, when I'd raise this idea to elected representatives at any level from Congress to city council, I would be met with a very negative reaction and even taken aback. Like, why would you want 
citizens to participate directly in policymaking. That's what they elected me to do. And indeed, it would be a bad idea for me to delegate that way, but it would be also irresponsible because I wouldn't be doing my job uh, that these people elected me to do. And I will tell you that I just don't hear that very often anymore these days from people who are elected. They're much, much more open to mechanisms of direct citizen participation. And I think part of that is that many of them are aware of this trend that you opened with, that their voters and constituents don't trust them and don't trust the institutions anymore. So they need to figure out ways of rebuilding that bridge to citizens and figuring out ways of being democratically legitimate because just getting elected doesn't do what it used to anymore. Although they seem to keep getting reelected and reelected at, at remarkable rates. But you know, the, the one thing that, that I am curious about is how these forums can interact with the more traditional modes of electoral democracy, political parties particularly. And I mean, the other thing that I do worry a little bit is that I think it's a real challenge to ensure that, that these town hall forums are actually representative of constituents, not just who participates, but also who speaks up. And, and who who is able to articulate concerns in a compelling way? Yeah, that's a great question. There has been some popular articles. I think one was in The Atlantic about, uh, but other places too, about how citizen participation is a terrible idea because the homeowners show up. And so you can't build any affordable housing or the NIMBY people show up and you can't build any green infrastructure, right? So that is a legitimate objection but again, I think the solution is not to reduce citizen participation because then you run into the conflict of interest and the corruption and the uh, lack of legitimacy and distrust problems that we just opened with. The solution is to develop mechanisms of citizen participation that are resistant to that problem. Sometimes people call it the NIMBY problem or the usual suspects problem. So one way is actually random selection. And so it's coming a little bit to the United States, but this democratic innovation of citizen assemblies is much more common in Europe where a randomly selected group of citizens, you know, oftentimes between 50 and 150 will discuss some issue uh, a randomly selected group of citizens helped rewrite the Constitution of Ireland um, a few years ago in ways that many people were surprised by and thought was good. They recommended to the people of Ireland that they support same-sex marriage and they support the legalization of, of uh, abortion. And both of those recommendations from a randomly selected group of people end up getting uh, large majorities in pop popular referenda in Ireland. So, you know, that's kind of one uh, example. More close to home example is that now the district maps in uh, California and Michigan are drawn by citizen assemblies. They're not exactly randomly selected, but they are 
pretty much ordinary people like you and me. They're not members of not 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 like you. <laughs> well, we're not that in ordinary the, in that uh. in that we spend you know a large percentage of our waking hours thinking about politics. These these people are not. <laughs> they're like more sane than you and I in that regard. But they're drawing the district maps for Congress and for uh, state legislature in Michigan and in California now, which is uh, to my mind a very helpful innovation if you care about gerrymandering. I do care about gerrymandering. But the, I mean, the the one thing, and I'll I'll just push push a little bit more on this, and then I want to talk about the the digital space is that you know even within these districting uh, commissions or or other things, right? If you if you bring a randomly selected group of people, they're still dependent on the experts who who show up, and so there there is some extent to which the way in which different positions get presented by experts. And you know, same way that if you go to a you know, jury trial, not, not everybody has equal legal representation. Some people can afford really good lawyers who bring a lot of evidence. Some people can't. So, I mean, I, I think we're, you know, the, the fundamental question I think comes down to is representativeness and, and legitimacy of process. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a really hard thing to get to. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And so one way to get to that, so you're right, all of these citizen assemblies, typically they involve a stage in which experts try to inform the group about the policy issue. Say it's like recycling or building green infrastructure, whatever it is, these are complex issues. And so people need to come up to speed. And so one, um, one technique to make sure that it's kind of fair and includes uh, uh, different perspectives and that the materials are balanced is to uh, have a, a group that includes, say it's recycling, it would include, you know, some consumer, some environmental interests, some industrial interests, and those representatives would get to approve the materials and the people that uh, talk to the citizen assembly so that it would have to go through this filter of interests on many different sides of the question. So that's that's one uh, method that people use to try to ensure the fairness of the process. As you say, it's really important. Yeah. So uh, I want to kind of move. We started with with AI and the digital space and something you've been thinking about. You, you wrote up uh, an essay with Josh Cohn, Democratic Responsibility in the Digital Public Sphere, in, in which you've been thinking about what makes for a good digital public sphere. And I think that there was an era in which you know, there was a lot of optimism that the digital public sphere would would be this great force of equality in which we would have community and, and organizing and better deliberation force of better arguments. And it hasn't quite worked out that way. So you know, one reason that some people have argued is, well, the incentives were wrong. We had these these platforms whose goal was to maximize engagement. And the way you maximize engagement is by doing all kinds of things that stoke people's emotions and get people riled up and angry and all this, all these sort of hot emotions, not cool emotions in which people would log off. But another view is maybe it's just the the nature of uh, of a kind of disembodied platform where people are doing things without the the face to face interaction, and people can be their sort of worst selves, especially 
given that they, they don't know who a lot of the people that they're interacting are. And another is, you know, it's just easy to pollute it with, with all these bots. So I think we're going to be having a, a digital space for the foreseeable future. Uh, so how should we think about making this digital space not least common denominator, not not just anger and fear and misinformation? Yeah, so that's a great question. I have a few thoughts there. First is like, how do we compare the democratic quality of this space that we're in now, you know, the digital public sphere with uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter and Facebook and everything else compared to that earlier era that you and I lived through a little bit, right, which was the mass media public sphere. And um, Josh and I in that essay, it's a kind of half empty, half full story, right? I think now uh, a lot of the commentary now, it's an all empty story that the current public sphere is just like 100% worse. But a couple of dimensions on which it's better are, I believe that it's easier if you try to get good information on just about any topic that you want, right? That's what the digital public sphere enables that the mass media public sphere didn't. A second dimension is it's a lot easier for basically any citizen to get their views into the public sphere, right? When I was uh, an irritated college student with lots of views, I would write my opinion contributions to the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I would get rejected 100% of the time. And now a person doesn't have to go through those filters. So the accessibility of the public sphere is much greater than it was in that era. Now, of course, there are uh, serious downsides too, right? One uh, downside is definitely on the civility side. Another downside which I think is really important, is that the proportion of people who are providing information, the number of truth seekers is just much, much lower. The proportion of truth seekers is much, much lower. In that mass media public sphere, the vast majority of speakers were journalists or politicians being reported through journalists who they didn't always get it right. A lot of times they got it wrong, but they were trying to get it right. They were very truth-oriented in a way that many, many speakers in the contemporary public sphere, the digital public sphere, are not. We're interested in getting clicks, or we're interested in selling ads, or we're interested in getting likes, or we're more interested in rallying people to our side. But the number of people who are interested in getting it right and number of speakers who are interested in telling Lee or Archon the truth is much lower, I believe, than it used to be. So that's the half empty, half full yeah. kind of evaluation. Another uh, piece is why did we get it wrong? You know, those of us who are early tech optimists, one thought is that, well, we this technology was inevitably the way that it is, uh, and we just didn't see it coming. I don't believe that's true. Right now, uh, we're, as you say, in an advertising-driven internet, and what we didn't see was that the form of the technology would be determined by the business model, and that was a blindness, right? And we didn't see that the way to make the, the most money off of the internet would be to be selling other people ads. Now, I think it's just a mistake to say that it has to be this way. Wikipedia is not that way, right? The content on Wikipedia is not determined by who sells the most ads. There's a very different dynamic going on there. And there um, could be, should have been probably a very different 
shaping of our current digital public sphere. I think that's a really interesting point about the difference between truth seeking and various for forms of just expressive signaling or commercially driven content. And I mean, I think Wikipedia is fundamentally a truth seeking website in which there's a community of people who have a collective stake in the quality of Wikipedia. And there's a, a lot of policing that goes on when people post things that are false, whereas on Twitter or Facebook or any other site that there's a anybody can say anything they want as long as they don't violate our terms of service, which we may or may not enforce depending on who's violating them uh, sense. And I mean, maybe we just accept that these are fundamentally different spaces. And if we treat Twitter as a or or any of these social platforms as places where you go just to express your views and other places where we go to seek truth and good information, maybe there's something there. But I, I think we've jumbled a lot of things together, a lot of functions together on these platforms. And as a result, we're, we're quite confused. So I, 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 now I want to hear your story. And along with your story, I want to ask you about what's going on at the Ash Center. We talk about this as a moment for potential democratic renewal. I think you and I are both optimistic that the crisis in the short term opens up a lot of possibilities and innovations for the longer term. So in addition to, to the story, tell us all what gives you hope and what you're excited about that's coming out of the Ash Center. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that question. You know, one more point about the digital piece, and I, I'd be interested in whether you think this is just way too hopeful or unrealistic, uh, hopefully unrealistic, unrealistically hopeful. Uh, and that is, so the title of our piece is Democratic Responsibility in the Digital Public Sphere, because we think one thing that's different, if things are going to get better in the digital public sphere, we as public sphere participants have to get better, that there's some amount of individual responsibility that we have to step up to, that there are ethics of behavior, just like, you know, maybe in a prior era, people getting killed in bars and stabbed in bars and bar fights was more common than it is now, because you go into a bar and you're just more civil and maybe a little bit more reluctant to get into a lethal fight. Like, what would that norm change look like? in the digital public sphere. And I, uh, we think that part of the improvement process has to be individuals getting better because if we want to maintain, unless you really want to shut it down and have all of the speakers be professionals like it was in the mass media public sphere, then individual behavior has to improve. So that's uh, one of the arguments that we make. And a lot of people, I think for good reasons, would say, well, yeah, but I think that's unrealistic. You know, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Let's think about that for a second. So what kept bar fights from being deadly in a sense was the, the emergence of a police force, right? Uh, the, you know, I mean, that, that there wasn't much of a police force once upon a time. And the the state stepped in and said, you know, we're, we're going to make certain behaviors illegal and we're, we're going to enforce that so we can make it a more civil space for everyone else. And you know, to some extent, that that is a sense of that there need to be some 
rules and regulations around what behavior is acceptable and some enforcement mechanism of that. Now, that is challenging because it uh, comes up against the ideals of free speech. But you know, in some ways, I think Wikipedia does provide a, a way to think about this is, is that you have a community of people who are invested in the reliability of that platform in the same way that people at the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal like the brand is really important. And I think it becomes even more important in this era that you have institutions where people take things really seriously and you can go to those institutions and they have trust and reliability. And you know, when we think about politics, right? I mean, there's a, 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 a lot of discussion of the U.S. political system and the U.S. Constitution is merely a parchment barrier. Uh, ultimately, it depends on the character of the people. And this is something that the framers thought a lot about. They had a very uh, narrow view of who had good character, but they did think a lot about the personal ethics of individual people. And you know, I think we've really lost a sense of that. And some of that is, is just a, a very market-based idea of, you know, well, anybody should be able to enter and and they should stand on the strength of their ideas rather than on some unobservable metric of character, which is probably just going to benefit those who are already in the establishment. But, you know, there are trade-offs, right? You know, you, you have to have gatekeepers and people who, who have a, a quality control standard, but you have to have some competition among gatekeepers because if there are only one or two gatekeepers, then they have way too much power. But if everybody's a gatekeeper, then nobody's a gatekeeper. I absolutely agree that you need some gatekeeping and you need rules and regulation and some enforcement. And that was a key to reducing the the deadly bar fight era, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, bring that a little bit to a close. Uh, but I think that they reinforce each other. And Wikipedia is a good example, right? So there is enforcement of uh, rules of uh, many, many rules about sourcing and content and so on. But then those rules both select for and then help develop the participants, the contributors sense of norms about what counts as a good article, right? And the kind of content that they want to produce and put in there. So you need both. You need people, participants who are appropriately more motivated and constrained, but then you also need um real constraints as well. And so I think the public sphere is uh, like that too, or the future, hopefully the future of the digital public sphere toward a better one. And the, and the same can be said about academia too, is that there are certain standards of, of how you get a career in academia by publishing in peer review articles, which have their own sets of standards. And that includes certain people and just includes other people. In an earlier era, you know, it was much more of a of a game of networks that you could just get some esteemed professor to say, this is Archon, he's really bright, you should give him a job. He doesn't have any publications, but I know he's he will. Uh, and speaking of academia, the follow-up on my previous question, which you dodged uh, or delayed on, what's what's going on at the Ash Center? Yeah, so I'll do two. I'll do the, the story and then the Ash Center. So the story uh, is, uh, okay, so a couple of book recommendations that go to this, that tell this story in exquisite detail. Uh, the first is uh, an older book by Victor Picard called America's Battle for Media Democracy. And then uh, a more recent book that is about the same phenomenon is called 
An Aristocracy of Critics by Stephen Bates. And these two books both tell the story of the Hutchins Commission in the post-war period. And so the last major era in which a revolution in communication technology really trashed democracy was before World War II. And that was radio and film, and then soon after television, that came after World War II. But so uh, after World War II, people in Europe and, um, and the United States were looking at these media technologies and thinking, wow, these can be really dangerous. They can be vehicles for the rise of Hitler and Mussolini and Hirohito and propaganda and mass delusion and the collapse of democracy. And so what are we going to do about these technologies to either tame them so that they don't destroy democracy, or maybe we could actually make them good for democracy. And so uh, this was the, the problem set to a uh, committee called the Hutchins Committee. And this was funded by Henry Luce, who was the publisher of Time Life magazine, or the owner, I guess. And then he uh, he set this group to work, funded them, and Hutchins was this guy who was the president of the University of Chicago. And so it was all these academics, for the most part, who were on the Hutchins Commission. And Henry Luce expected these guys to come, and they were all guys, come back with freedom of expression. That's what we need to protect uh, democracy and make media good for democracy. But they came back with a much, much more demanding agenda. And the agenda is that the role of mass media is to give citizens the information that they need to be good citizens in a democracy. And that includes truth orientation and it includes giving people an arc of the day's events and the year's events so that they can actually make good decisions about their uh, political representatives and be, good again, good citizens in a democracy. And they it also said, guess what? You know, you media companies, it's going to cost you a little bit to do this. Number one, there's going to have to be like real professional journalists, and that's not cheap. And number two, there's got to be the mission of that democracy is the mission, creating an informational environment that's good for democracy. And that's going to create a lot of constraints. So if an investigative journalist writes a story exposing the malfeasance of your biggest advertiser, you know, the norm is you've got to run that story. And of course, as we know, that was a norm that was frequently violated in the breach. But nevertheless, I think everyone understood that to be a norm. And the results of the Hutchins Commission over time, I think, had a profound influence on how media businesses understood what they were going to be doing and what they were supposed to be doing and the norms of professional journalism. And it became kind of the... Um, the rules of corporate social responsibility in the mass media era, which I think was quite good for democracy for a few decades until uh, that era kind of eroded with cable and talk radio and then eventually the internet and the digital public sphere that we're talking about, right? And so the that's a happy story in that uh, collective action really turned the corner and made communication technology, which uh, could have been and was very bad for democracy, good for democracy. And so I think the lesson for the current moment is like, how are we going to suit up and do, you know, it's not going to look like the Hutchins Commission, but a similar exercise in which we figure out how to make social media good for democracy rather than corrosive to it. Um, yeah, it, sound, it sounds like a very, 
a very militant democracy kind of view of things, <laughs> which is, is. A, an idea that's coming back into force a little bit these days. Yeah, yeah, good. And so at the Ash Center, uh, we've got a lot of things going on. My particular interest is in fostering conversations about structural changes uh, that would make American democracy much better. And Lee, you know that our constitution doesn't change very often. Our political structures are more stable for sometimes for good reasons. Now, I think uh, for some bad ones than those of most other industrial democracies. And so uh, we're trying hard to think about uh, ways to improve American democracy in the medium and long term. And part of that is hosting conversations about structural changes like proportional representation, like multi-party democracy, like pathways through the electoral college. No other modern democracy has an indirectly elected president, right? Uh, ours is the only presidential system that has anything like the electoral college. Uh, we'll be hosting some conversations to think about the pluses and minuses and strategies for reforming the electoral college. And then we are embarking on a set of activities that's much more directed at election professionals. You know, everybody from the person who takes your vote in uh, 2020 and 2024 takes your ballot to county election administrators, to secretaries of state, to think about what that field and what that profession is doing and how it can be strengthened and how it can be sustained through time with the thought that a lot of thought about elections and democracy occurs at the policy level, like big blue ribbon commissions on what policies we ought to change, the Freedom to Vote Act debates for and against. But then here the thought is how democracy goes depends in large part upon democracy professionals. You know, healthcare policy matters a fair amount about how your health is. But so does the quality of your doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers. And education policy matters, you know, a fair bit, but also the quality of your kids' education and young people's education depends a whole lot on the quality of teachers and principals and school administrators. So our thought is, well, the quality of our elections and democracy probably also depends a lot on the quality of the elections field and profession. So let's pay a little bit more attention to that. So those are a couple of things we've got cooking. So you heard it here first. Democracy depends on the people. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Archon. This has been a delightful and insightful conversation. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.